Okay, we are live. Uh, my name is Matthew Crawford from Routing the Earth, and today I'm having a conversation with Stuart Buck about uh, medicine, biomedical science, and uh, and things that uh, seem to be you know parts of disagreements of philosophy in today's environment. And joining me today uh, is Stuart Buck, and I'll allow him to introduce himself. Sure. Hey, so I'm Stuart. Um, I, I guess I'll just say a little bit about my background and uh, what I'm doing now. So. Um, I've actually done quite a few different things in my life, which you can take as um, probably an indication that I have trouble making up my mind. But uh, I started out, did a music degree in classical guitar performance. Um, then I realized that that's hard to make a living at. So I um, went to law school, as a lot of liberal arts graduates with no idea what they're doing um, end up doing. So uh, yeah, I went to law school, practiced law for a few years. And then, as also typical of people in that situation, they realize I didn't know what I was getting into with practicing law. So, um, you know, billing hours for the rest of my life and you know, trying to get clients doesn't also doesn't like appeal to me for the rest of my life. So, went back to school, got a PhD, um, and at that point, uh, it thought I was going to go into academia, but then um, uh, ended up just through connections, uh, learning about a research job at a foundation that was just starting up called the Lauren John Arnold Foundation. Uh, they've since renamed themselves to Arnold Ventures, um, but at the time they were they were pretty new, um, and so the, went, they're based out of Houston. Is that right? Yes, that that foundation okay. is based in Houston, and that's I moved to Houston for that job, and I'm still here in the area. Um, but that foundation also has uh, while I was there opened up offices in D.C. and uh, they, actually they had a small office in New York that has since grown pretty substantially. But I think the biggest, well, actually I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't say the um, it's probably evenly split amongst the um, offices, but the big the home office is in Houston. Uh, so I joined as director of research and then later vice president of research. Um, and it's a foundation that has a, uh, a lot of interest in evidence-based policy across a lot of issues, such as uh, criminal justice reform, uh, public pension reform was a big issue early on, education reform and supporting charter schools, um, uh, health policy, which tends to focus there, they tend to focus on issues like pharma pricing. Um, and the issue that I worked on for several years was the integrity of research or reproducibility of research. Uh, so I got to be part of helping launch the Center for Open Science, uh, which is in Virginia, um, did a lot of work on clinical trial transparency. Um, so sponsored Ben Goldacre at Oxford, he had written a book called Bad Pharma uh, about problems in pharmaceutical research. Um, so sponsored him to help open up uh, evidence-based kind of meta medicine lab at Oxford. Um, I've read but, one of his books. Yeah, a bunch of other stuff like that. Um, and sponsored the reproducibility projects in psychology and in cancer biology, uh, both of which found that it's it's really hard to replicate a lot of uh, scientific literature, basically, to, to put it yes. what it mildly. Um, and uh, so I left Arnold at the in the middle of last year and got some funding to start up basically my own thing, a small nonprofit called the Good Science Project. And the focus of that is uh, improving scientific research uh, and improving the funding process more specifically uh, so that we can have uh, a research ecosystem that's more innovative and efficient and effective, um, more open to outside the box ideas, uh, not as tied down in bureaucracy. You know, so those are some of the issues that uh, I'm currently working on. Okay, so that's kind of the the shortest version I can I can give you. I appreciate your interest in education. Um, after I worked on, um, I, I started out on Wall Street uh, as a quant trader, um, but my intention was always to uh, move toward education. 
Hmm. And so I spent um, a few years building a, what's become a large online school. Uh, it's maybe had a million students or so go through, wrote some textbooks wow. uh, aimed at um, gifted math students and um, the, the top end of whom study for like the national and international math Olympiads. Um, uh, closed down my last school about six years ago. By the way, I'm a, uh, I'm a transplanted Texan. Uh, I'm in Dallas now. Um, okay. And uh, and then uh, got into uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but kind of dropped everything at the beginning of the pandemic because I felt like that all the conversation going on early on about medicine was nonsense. And mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll, I'll bring the audience in now. Um, you and I met because I, I, I can't even remember, remember exactly what the post about, but it was about something uh, related to hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. uh, being effective um, in, in the treatment of COVID-19. And you expressed surprise that there are still people like trying to make hydroxychloroquine work. And so we had a little bit of a, a discussion and, um, and we had different perspectives, but unlike uh, most people on Twitter, uh, you seemed uh, game to have uh, a, a sit down conversation uh, discussion as opposed to uh, Twitter combat, uh, mm -hmm. which I commend you for. <laughs> sure. And, and so that's where we are. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to you as to uh, whether or not, um, well, I, actually, I'll, I'll mention one thing that, that may get the conversation started. Um, I'm, I'm a strong believer that almost all of the methodological perspectives, specifically with respect to statistics and biomedical sciences is almost entirely just nonsense, like literally hmm. incomprehensible. And uh, it, it, it's been a very strange thing to watch it grow to a point where people take it seriously, because even like uh, the man who invented inferential statistics, Ronald Fisher, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, three, almost three decades after he introduced uh, his methodologies, um, he wrote a book explaining, wait, you're all doing it wrong. And this is going in a very bad direction. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we've kind of gone down a path at which it's become accepted, um, just like a uh, you know, redefinition of p-values and, and uh, you know, um, uh, apply a distribution here and never really go back and run an experiment again that actually tests whether or not the distribution was reasonable. Um, but one thing in particular is I have, um, uh, it, it's not even just an issue. Like, I, I think the, the idea of having this pyramid where we have, um, you know, forms of evidence that are at the very top and then, you know, everything down below it is, is lesser evidence. And we almost begin to talk about forms of evidence there as if they're almost meaningless hmm. without the higher forms of evidence. And, and in many cases, the higher forms of evidence, like I think randomized control trials are something that should actually have sort of a sliver of a place, not even like a whole level. But there are many times when you wouldn't want to run one, which I'm sure you're familiar with the parachute example. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I think actually, it's actually a, a small window uh, of situations where I think you would want to run one. And even in those situations, you would only run it if it's um, if it hits its own economic window, as in it's very expensive to run an RCT. Um, and uh, if you and and that enough data points from observational control trials or just observational data series, I think are plenty good enough. And that actually 90% of the medicines that are approved by the FDA were approved on nothing more than that anyway. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, you said a lot there. So, yeah, we could dig into um, a lot of those issues. I mean, so so where I'm coming from, um, uh, so, so I, I, I've been influenced a lot by the work of, of this professor named Vinay Prasad. I don't know if there's a way I can put links in. Uh, actually, there's a little box that says chat with everyone in the studio. Is that just you? 
I don't you know. can oh. share screen and I can throw what you share on. Okay. Well, um, I don't have a particular screen to share, but, um, but so Vinay Prasad, uh, folks can look him up. It's, uh, his last name is P-R-A-S-A-D. Um, he is a, a professor. He formerly was at the Oregon Health and Science University. Um, now he's at uh, UCSF. And full disclosure, uh, at the, while I was at the Arnold Foundation, uh, participated in giving him some funding to kind of expand uh, you know, what he's doing. So you might say I'm biased in his favor. But um, he wrote a book with a colleague uh, called uh, on, on the, pro the problem of medical reversals, uh, so to speak. Um, and it's something he had studied for years. And what, what he means by medical reversal is there's some established medical practice um, that, that everyone's convinced is, is doing good. And then someone does a large, a larger, more definitive randomized trial, perhaps the first randomized trial, or perhaps just some one that's better than the ones before. And then uh, shows that the, the treatment or medicine or practice in question, um, in fact, isn't working and sometimes is causing harm. Um, and so there, he has hundreds of examples of where this has occurred uh, in the history of medicine. So I'm not gonna go into all of them, but one kind of classic example um, is the issue of hormone replacement therapy for uh, women going through menopause. And so kind of the, the short version of this history is that like in the 80s, 90s, there was some uh, observational evidence suggesting that uh, you know, when women go through menopause, you know, they lose hormones in their body and that if you replace those hormones, that would somehow uh, you know, uh, increase their health. It would, it would help perhaps prevent heart disease that often affects middle-aged elderly women. Um, so there were uh, lots of doctors and millions of women across America who, who uh, partook in hormone replacement therapy uh, for, for older women. Um, well, the, the NIH and others uh, sponsored this major uh, randomized trial. It was actually two randomized trials um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, called the Women's Health Initiative. And one randomized trial tested uh, giving women just estrogen, and one tested uh, giving them estrogen plus another hormone called progestin. And both of the randomized trials ended up having to be stopped early because the women were being harmed. So like the, the trial with uh, estrogen and progestin, um, the, the women getting the, those hormones, um, which again, is not really a drug, it's just the, replacing the body's natural hormones. Um, they had higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of stroke and higher rates of breast cancer uh, than the control group um, getting a placebo. Uh, so the, you know, the ethics review board say, okay, that's it. Like there's evidence that women are being harmed by this. We have to stop it. And so it became the, that became a kind of a classic, uh, case study in kind of the dangers of, uh, relying solely on observational evidence and not really testing it rigorously in a randomized trial. So what, looking back, it, it seems likely that the kinds, the kinds of women who were conscientious enough and or well off enough to seek out this therapy in the first place. Uh, maybe just ended up being healthier for lots of other reasons that, you know, you couldn't really control for in uh, the observational data because you just don't have the, the a, a full picture about every, literally everything about uh, someone, including their conscientiousness and, you know, their, their, their habits and so forth. Um, so that's, so that's a, a, an example. And again, there, there are lots of others in Vinay Prasad's work and his book um, where, uh, you know, a randomized trial or one or more randomized trials can uh, end up kind of reversing what doctors previously thought was the right thing to do. And in fact, I would argue that that's, uh, you know, really why we've had a lot of medical progress in, in the past hundred years. You know, doctors used to do all sorts of things that were not in fact, uh, useful for, you know, they used to prescribe heroin for, for coughs. They used to 
you know, uh, you know, draw people's blood just to thinking that would cure a headache or something. So, uh, you know, the, the reason I think that we've, we've really progressed in medicine is that we, we came across this idea of like really rigorously testing and seeing what works and kind of dropping the things that don't over time. So that's kind of the background of okay. perspective on, on and the I, value of RCTs. And I can, I can see, I can see why that would, um, why that would bring to mind a value in RCT. RCT. So I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can uh, counter that, but in a, a way that respects um, like, uh, you know, that, that was a good example um, that uh, that trial that you talked about. I think, you know, most of the trials, I think you'll talk, um, you know, most of the the examples that we have from the 20th century. First, I'll say, it, well, we're, we're talking about a, a tiny sliver of the things that we do in medicine that have had reversals like that or that would need reversals. And I would think that the vast majority of them are really things like drawing blood where there was no good reason to begin with. It was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of based on, you know, medical voodoo at, at best. Whereas I would say that, that those cases have sort of long vanished and that RCTs may have cleared those out and that we don't really need to clear those out anymore for the most part. Um, what I think now that, that we have a danger of is that um, the RCTs have become, you know, sort of controlled more and more by the pharmaceutical industry. They have learned how to um, perhaps introduce their own confounders by being able to select patients in a way that is a black box. They've learned to be able to dodge running their trials in hospitals where they have more viewers because uh, very often um, it was you know, nurses and doctors who weren't even necessary, who, who were better trained than, you know, people that you might hire from an agency, um, but uh, maybe who weren't even involved, who might notice, you know, problems that were going on or patient behavior or things like that. So um, I, I think that we've, uh, my, my contention would be that we moved from an era in which we sort of cleaned out the low hanging fruit and that now, um, uh, you know, RCTs are being used uh, in a way that you know, sort of tilts the playing field of results into the hands of those controlling the trials. Um, and, and, and an interesting, you know, point as far as that goes is the WH trials on hydroxychloroquine. And I don't know how um, familiar you are with how those trials went, but I think that uh, if people understood, I, I think they would be considered criminal. Wh which trials? Uh, the WHO trials. Ah, okay. And, uh, and there were two trials that were conducted and the interesting thing, uh, yeah, there's several interesting things about those trials. At the very beginning, um, pharmacokinetic studies came out that said the correct dosage for hydroxychloroquine was going to be about 3.6 to 3.7 um, uh, grams total. And this would get the, the blood serum up to the right plasma level. Um, and, that, and, and this was actually, this was right in line with what doctors were mostly using around the world. Most doctors were using, you know, 2.4 to 4 grams. Um, but with, you know, with the possibility of using more for some patients also watch the, uh, watch the heart chart for perhaps older patients or patients with heart conditions. Um, I think that in 2020, there were a total of like seven reported cases of a very rare heart condition that happens with some people who take hydroxychloroquine, uh, but no deaths or anything like that. Uh, even though we had a little bit of scare media over that with the heart conditions. Um, so they decided, and, and they even referred to higher doses um, that they were discussing as undoubtedly high. And yet suddenly the pharmacokinetic studies disappeared off the WHO website and they used uh, dosages of 9.6 and 10.4 grams, which were around, you know, two and a half times as high as what other people were using around the world. Nobody was suggesting it. Nobody was recommending it. 
And they, they went with these undoubtedly high doses, even though higher dose trials had already, there was a trial in Brazil that had already been stopped that was higher dose. And uh, they stopped it because patients were dying. And, and then, uh, so that was one of three problems. The second problem was um, they're testing an antiviral. Mm-hmm. And when you test an antiviral, the obvious way to test it is as soon as possible, mm-hmm. right? Um, something like Tamiflu, you're told, hey, if you take this after the first two days, uh, there's no chance that it'll work. And I don't know how effective it is anyway. That's its own debate. But the point is, no one would even suggest using it on day four. Mm-hmm. And uh, the viral replication stage for SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, more like five to eight days for most people. And uh, their median patient was, um, you know, seven days into symptoms during these trials. So they were using uh, a high dose that didn't make any sense at all. They were giving it to late stage patients, and then they were using it as a monotherapy instead of a conjunctive therapy. Whereas um, a lot of people were suggesting, look, the mechanism is that it helps get bioavailable zinc into the body. And in fact, when you look at the hydroxychloroquine research, um, one of the things you'll find 300 something papers that have been published is uh, a pretty substantial portion of the papers that were negative were on specifically immunocompromised patients who were taking hydroxychloroquine chronically long-term. And it may be that that affects the bioavailability of zinc in the body because the body may become used to always having hydroxychloroquine around and having to adjust its equilibrium uh, as far as that goes. So they made three what seemed like you know, very obvious mistakes that you would think this would not be the way that you would test the drug if you actually wanted to know if it actually worked. Hmm. Okay, that's, I mean, look, the, I, without getting into any of the like specifics of how hydroxychloroquine may or may not work, I mean, I, you're making a point that is well taken that uh, RCTs can be far from sufficient or, or, or can be inadequate in many ways. I mean, I, I still think that a, a question like whether a drug works or not is best studied in an RCT, but there are lots of ways to screw up RCTs. And they're the pharma, you know, like again, I funded Ben Goldacre, who wrote Bad Pharma. There are lots and lots of examples of where pharma companies have skewed RCTs in a particular direction. In fact, I remember, I would never be able to find it now, but I remember several years ago, I came across some website where someone was advertising a patented statistical method for screening patients, you know, in such a way that you would maximize the uh, treatment effect found in an RCT. And so they were trying to advertise this to pharma companies. And I just remember thinking, Hey, this seems like very biased. Like it's, it's like you're, you're advertising a way to bias your results. Uh, But just the idea of patenting a statistical method also seemed weird. Like it's seems to me (laughs) trying to, trying to file a patent on, on math. I don't, I don't understand that, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there, there are lots and lots of examples of, uh, RTTs that have been, uh, you know, biased or skewed in one way or another, but it's, but I still come back to the point that for me, at least like the, and for the FDA and so forth, like there's no better way to show that a drug works than to, than to test it in an RCT like this. And yeah, you referred to the parachute example. And for uh, viewers or listeners who, who aren't familiar with that, there's this classic, and it's hilarious, um, kind of uh, sat- satirical essay in the British Medical Journal, or which is they now call it BMJ, um, uh, which they, they publish this uh, Christmas edition every year that's full of satirical articles or articles that are sometimes based on actual data, but that, that are studying a, a kind of frivolous or satirical question. Um, so it's, it's pretty funny, at least, you know, in a geeky sort of way, 
So, so there's this article about, uh, you know, the idea of doing randomized trials on parachutes, namely, like, have we done a randomized trial on whether people survive at a higher rate when they jump out of a plane if they have a parachute or not? And it was saying that the proponents of evidence-based medicine need to, you know, step up and, you know, participate in a, in a randomized trial of this if, if they think that randomized trials are the only way to get evidence. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of a satirical way of suggesting that, you know, in a lot of cases, the, um, the evidence that something works is absolutely obvious. And, uh, yeah, there's no need to do ran to ran to randomize people because that's that would actually be unethical because the, the control group would obviously, um, in that case be crashing and dying. So, um, now here's the thing though, Vinay Prasad is also, I should go back to him. He's written, uh, uh, one or more articles, uh, arguing that in medicine, parachutes, the equivalent of parachutes are pretty rare. I mean, there are some cases, so like Gleevec or Aramatinib is a, is a treatment for a particular type of leukemia. And that was approved by the FDA, like in, a, in the blink of an eye, without a randomized trial because, or, or without a large randomized trial. I mean, it's, but it's, it's such an almost miracle drug. I mean, you give it to people with this kind of leukemia and like, I forget what it was, something like 80% went to remission. And it's just like the evidence is so... Yeah, it, so striking and so obvious, like there's no way that that could happen by chance or there's no way that could happen by just selecting patients that were just about to go into remission because they just don't do that. So, okay. That, okay. Can, can I interject right there? Yeah. Uh, that's a great point. Um, historically, um, for the vast majority, like, you know, we, we have talked about, you know, this, this example that you brought up where RCTs were critical in overturning what was you know, previous belief about uh, particular medicine, though historically, um, and, and I can send you links for this if you want, historically OCTs have, have at a certain power level, shown the exact same results as RCTs, um, you know, in the, in the vast majority of examples uh, that have been studied. Uh, and in particular for hydroxychloroquine, uh, we have over 200,000 data points in published case series with approximately a 0.03 mortality rate. And granted, there may be reasons why these aren't the exact same patients, right? There, it may be that someone who goes to a teledoc or someone who goes to a fever clinic may, may have a little bit of a different profile. Um, uh, but you know, the, the, when the larger case fatality rate is perhaps 1.5%, yeah, that's a 98% difference. And that's not likely to be due to something like a conscientiousness effect or a wealth effect. Um, that we might be able to find. I would say that that's at that kind of like way overwhelming level. You know, even just uh, the results from um, uh, Dr. Um, Brian Tyson and George Fareed in Southern California in Imperial County. Um, I was the statistician on their their case series uh, at the point at which they had about 4,000 patients. They've got about 12,000 now, four hospitalizations and zero deaths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going through, they didn't have quite as large a pool of elderly patients uh, as the, the general population. And, you know, the, uh, these were not nursing home patients. And I, I did a correction, you know, to kind of show this is approximately where I thought the, the target risk differential would be in that study, but it was like, it was like a 70% type ratio, not a, you know, 98% type ratio, uh, or, or like a 30% differential, not like a 98% differential. Um, and, and showed that even if, uh, you reduced the number of hospitalizations in the county by 99%, their result would still be significantly, statistically significant as a reduction of hospitalization. And if you reduced mortality in the county by 
uh, almost 97%, that uh, their result then would have, and this was with 4,000 patients, it's 12,000 now. So you probably reduce the mortality in the county by 99% and they have a statistically significant result. So at some point, an OCT, I would argue, becomes like an RCT insofar as there is an existence theorem of a matching group, right? If you kind of like put people on a scale of zero to 100 in terms of their risk levels, and uh, granted with COVID, it's kind of an exponential curve when you get to the elderly and uh, people with comorbidities, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, even so, if you, if you have 12,000 data points and you have no deaths at all, like the idea that there isn't an associated risk group in the county that you could match them to very closely. In fact, in fact, I've done the calculations and, uh, and the chances that, um, that an RCT would get a closer matching are, you know, one in many powers of 10. So an OCT can reach the power level like an existence theorem of an RCT. If you had matched these people, you would have had a statistically significant result. Hmm. I mean, so that's interesting. I mean, I, I guess I would have to dig further into the, that, that kind of data. I mean, I'm just, Thinking like, what's the baseline mortality rate that you know we're expecting to see from COVID these days? Right? Is it? I mean, it's probably somewhere under one percent, right? So, well, in, in Imperial County, it was around three percent. It's a border county, um, a higher rate of um, you know uh, farm workers and uh, and Mexican Americans, and they had uh, higher rates of of illness and mortality. Hmm. So it was one of the highest case fatality rates in the country. Um, but, you know, my, my thought was to apply approximately 1.5% um, to the, the larger results. I know that um, uh, Ben, um, I'm trying to think of his last name for a moment, uh, Ben Marble, who became the first person to have treated, you know, patients in all 50 states. Uh, he was uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for that. Um, his, his telemedicine group has uh, treated uh, 100 something thousand patients with just uh, some small handful of, of mortalities. But you know, overall, like I, I kept seeing similar results from case series around the world. Uh, Dr. Um, uh, Heather Gessling in Missouri, I met her and she had had one patient out of 1600 die from COVID and that patient uh, wouldn't take the medicine. Hmm. So, you know, it's in the case series, but, um, and then uh, uh, there's one uh, who uh, in Houston, who's become a little bit controversial, um, who's in the lawsuit with uh, Houston Methodist, uh, if, if I'm naming the hospital right, um, who I, I think she had like 3,700 patients in one death, which is approximately, you know, what you would expect from background over a period of like two, three, four weeks of observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, and uh, and uh, just to point this out, uh, just earlier, um, just a few days ago, last week, I think, there was a study published out of Harvard that examined prophylaxis research in hydroxychloroquine. And it determined that uh, hydroxychloroquine showed a statistically significant effect in preventing COVID-19. And you know, they, I, I think that the data was always there, but they were picky with the studies. For instance, there are 11 studies out of India alone and you know, sometime last year, um, uh, to uh, Stricker and Fessler, uh, I've been in contact with Stricker a little bit uh, last year, um, but they published uh, a study on those 11 trials out of uh, India. And six of them had, um, had like 
two different um, uh, two different protocols where you could examine a dose effect over time. Mm-hmm. And in all 11 of those studies, uh, the treatment arm outperformed the placebo arm. Some of them were statistically significant. Some of them were not. But in, in all six where you had the opportunity to observe a dose effect, there was a dose effect. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that kind of consistency adds up. And even the people who were excluding a lot of these papers from their, you know, uh, from their meta-analyses, uh, eventually they piled up and the Harvard School of Public Health has published um, this, uh, this analysis that says, yeah, it works. And the odds are, and the interesting thing is they said, well, but, but it doesn't work for treatment of COVID-19. It's just, just for prophylaxis, but there are only two citations for saying that it doesn't work were the WHO trials. Hmm. Um, so what say, do you, do you have on hand, like the, um, the name of that, you mentioned a study about prophylaxis. Yeah. Um, Garcia Albaniz. Garcia. Yeah. Let me, um, uh, let's see if I can share a link with you directly, uh, through private chat here. Do you see that in private chat? Yeah. Oh yeah. I see that. Um, and again, I think that they had been excluding a lot of evidence unnecessarily. One of the problems I have with meta-analyses is um, better than meta-analysis is a feedback loop, right? And, and this, is, this is one of the problems, I think, with the entire framework of bio, biomedical analysis. <clears throat> it's been changed to mean something that it's not. And I think this is part of what encouraged the replicability crisis is that you have somebody publish one thing with a p-value. A p-value is a virtually meaningless statistic if you publish one study. Um, you know, people, uh, what's your interpretation of a p-value, just out of curiosity? My interpretation? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a p-value technically just means um, that if there is no effect uh, to be observed, if there's no actual effect, um, what is the probability that um, just a, the chance or random distribution of data um, would show an effect um, it, given your particular model that you're using to, to, to study this data. Okay, uh, that's incorrect. And that's a great example of dogma that has been used to confuse people about biomedical science. Um, in inferential statistics, basically everyone outside of medicine and public health um, interprets p-values differently. Um, of course, the psychologists have pretty much no idea either. But that's not that's not what Ronald Fisher invented, and it's not something that that the broad community of statistics thinks is a valid way to, you know, interpret like a one-off experiment or something like that. What a p-value is actually for is to say, look, um, you're comparing to a distribution. You're, com- you know, and what you said about like, you know, it, it, it would this happen at random chance? Well, how do you know what would happen? You know, out of random chance, you have a distribution in mind, a model. There are infinitely many distributions that you can pick. But people pick the very simple ones and compare the results according to that distribution comparison, whether that's right or wrong. And then if they get P is less than 0.05, they say, well, that would have been unlikely. But how do they know they were comparing it to a reasonable distribution? The way that you use a p-value is you run the experiment again after using your last results as the distribution. And, And then you rerun it and you rerun it and you rerun it. This is like artificial intelligence, right? Repeat change your distribution, repeat, change your distribution. And eventually, if your distribution is becoming close to reality, asymptotically close, your p-values should be totally random, bouncing around between zero and one. 
That's actually how p-values are supposed to be used. That's what Ronald Fisher's definition was, and that's how you know we use it within recursive, you know, re when you're repeating science, uh, recursive experiments. Hmm. And it's interesting, um, you know, with the exception of the biostatisticians who should know better, I don't know if all of them do or not. You know, the, the statistics community actually tried to tried to um, you know let the public know for years, but it's one of those things where you know, they don't have the money and the power to project the reality of that problem. And it's hard to explain to most people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the biomedical community, I think, um, you know, quite intentionally sort of, you know, pulled the wool over people's eyes to, you know, suggest that that was something different than it really is. But, uh, you know, a lot of the psychology community has kind of gone along with that because, um, well, as you're probably aware, they're part of the same replication crisis, not quite as bad as or biomedical science, but the two of them are, you know, up there with uh, high proportions of unreplicable results. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so like the the kind of stuff that I would rely on in interpreting p values. So like, here's this article by Andrew Greenland and uh, Steve Goodman um, at Stanford, um, Doug Altman, Ken Rothman. Stevenson, a lot of a lot of statisticians and epidemiologists. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously there are different interpretations of p-value. You know, Fisher's interpretation was different than, yeah, Naaman Pearson and so forth. Like there've been disputes over the years. I mean, it, like I do think p-values are often misused. That they're um, they're taken as, as dichotomous when that's you know, as if 0.049 is different from 0.051, um, but, and that's the way people act, but I don't think that's that's true at all. So and, Andy Gelman at, at uh, Columbia um, has this nice little article that's titled something like, the difference between statistically significant and statistically insignificant is not statistically significant. So if that, if that makes sense. Like, so the difference between a, a, a study that shows 0.049 and a study that has a p-value of 0.051 the difference between those those particular outcomes is not itself statistically significant. So there's no reason to treat them differently. Right. Um, and, and that's a, that, it, that's a, a good point. And one that I'm making in an article that I'm writing right now about the Albanese study, um, mm -hmm. the hydroxychloroquine uh, prophylaxis study. Um, that's a good point. It, 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 that's true. And it's it, it's a different issue. It's a different issue, though. But, um, but I, 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 I think that uh, it's important for people to understand that um, you know, the idea of a p-value was supposed to be, you know, on replicated studies. And, and the reason is the same reason that you argue for RCTs, right? Which is, uh, you know, what is it you're comparing this thing to in order to know, right? Why is it that biomedical statisticians are allowed to say this is the correct distribution when there are infinitely many of them? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess they're, they're usually assuming a kind of normal Gaussian distribution, Um but yeah, they, I guess that's a fair point. Like, why? Why that one? Why that one out of beta distribution or gamma distribution, et cetera? Um, and, and most things don't conform to classical distributions, right? I mean, there, fortunately, there are a lot of things in, uh, in biology that do conform to, um, to normal distributions. Uh, but COVID-19, for instance, is something where you have, um, you know, if, if you want to you need an exponential distribution once you apply the risk factor, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the, the higher risk people are literally, 
you know, three or more orders of magnitude at higher risk of mortality than people on the lower end. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right. Yeah. So and this was one of the critiques of the vaccine studies, which is, you know, um, the number of people like, the, you know, they mostly looked at like 30 something to 50 something year olds. There were mm -hmm. very few people who were elderly and with, you know, piles of comorbidities like most of the people who die. Um, and so, you know, what they were, the, the number of people you would need to power such a trial to actually determine whether it was effective is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I think I calculated it and actually got a seven digit number mm. by, by their profile. And so, you know, by, by letting people pick their own distributions, you're almost letting them, um, you know, choose what the p-value is almost. Hmm. Interesting. See, I'm looking at this uh, uh, Garcia Albina study and, uh, um, oh, uh, Miguel Hernan, uh, he's, he's really good. Um, yeah, but he's a great epidemiologist, uh, does a lot of work on causal analysis of uh, epidemiological evidence, target trials and so forth. Um, yeah, so so like the, if I, so looking at the link that you sent me, um, it says like the pooled risk ratio estimate of pre-exposure prophylaxis trials is 0.72. Um, so indicating that there's like a 28% reduction in risk of of something or other, like, I'm not sure what, I have to read further to find out what, what exactly they're measuring the risk of. Um, like getting COVID. Just getting COVID at all? Yeah. Huh, okay. Um, or not not some more serious, just like hospitalization or something. Okay. Actually, um, actually, I'm not sure. They they may have mixed effects. Uh, I'm still I'm still reading that, but I know that most of the the trials were just getting COVID. Um, I'm familiar enough with. I've read about 250 hydroxychloroquine papers during the pandemic, um, but I'd have to look at their list to say for sure. But I think I think most of them are just getting COVID, and uh, that would make the most sense for for yeah. uh, prep trials. Right. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm just clicking through the very first trial they cite is, is in their, in their meta-analysis. So that's the one that they, the first one they cite is, is this one. Let's see. They have a list, they have a list of like this, the trials they included. So that was the first one that I clicked on. Um, so let's see what, it, what is this? What did they do? They, Oh yeah. They, okay. They say that in this trial, they said the underlying endpoint was confirmed or probable COVID-19 compatible illness. I'm not sure what that means. COVID-19 compatible. Um, let's see. So, so yeah, so in this trial, so I guess here's, I'll, I'll explain why I'm going into this. It's just in, in just a second. So like in this underlying trial, they said the incidence of COVID-19 was 0.27 events per person per year um, with the hydroxychloroquine compared with 0.38 events per person per year with placebo. Um, so I would just, so going back to the overall kind of meta point, like, like reducing your risk of getting COVID from 38% a, in a year's time to 27% a year's time, that's, let, let's assume that's a valid effect. But to me, that's that's not the, anything like the effect of a parachute. You know, this is just like the risk of getting COVID dropped by 10 percentage points over a year's time. That's not something that, you know, is so blindingly obvious that you didn't need an RCT to figure it out. I mean, it's so that's that's kind of a subtle effect. It's not something you could just like 
yeah, I mean, you can observe with your own eyes. Someone doesn't have a parachute, they fall, they hit the ground. You, I mean, you're seeing it happen in real in real time. I mean, observing that here's a patient that had that only had a 27% chance of getting COVID at all in the entire year versus a 38% chance. That's kind of hard to detect, like with the naked eye. So okay, um, can, I, can I counter that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, two things is one, with the exception of the high side of the risk curve. There is no parachute for anyone, right? This pandemic, COVID-19, is not a high risk factor right. for 90% of the population. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like, okay, you know, to say that would be to say that um, that we're not really in an emergency. There is a, a targeted portion of the population that's in an emergency. Um I, I, and, I, and also we, we found, and this is interesting because health authorities just never talk about this, but we've, we can find genetic markers, right? There, there are specific, um, you know, like autoimmune disorders, like mm -hmm. auto interferon antibodies, that if you don't have those and you're not very old or very sick already, you're just not going to suffer much from COVID-19. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to have something that's a little bit worse than a flu, perhaps. Right. Um, but uh, but uh, let, let me go back to the larger statistical point, though. Um, mm -hmm. I actually think that uh, this meta-analysis, I think that they've thrown out a lot of good evidence and that the effect size is substantially larger than the effect size that they are reporting. You know, they're just running things through a particular statistical rubric. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, there's another analysis of 11 studies out of India, you know, most all of which they've just thrown in the trash. And it's unclear why, because all 11 of these studies were conducted with similar protocols through the Indian Council of Medical Research. And of course, that doesn't mean that they're all the same quality, but it's unclear, you know, like uh, these these researchers, you know, deciding which ones go, you know, into the meta-analysis, they, they don't seem to have made any noticeable effort that I can detect from reading their analysis as to why they would throw some of these out, but only include others. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have to really dig into it in more detail than, I mean, we could spend like probably all day just like digging into the sure. detail of that and figuring it out. But I mean, I'm, I mean, off the top of my head, I mean, I would just, I, I would suspect it's that, you know, we, someone like, like Miguel Hernan, he's really good. Um, you know, doing a meta-analysis, they, they ought, they should have, you know, started out with a list of criteria. Um, and I mean, ideally to do a meta-analysis, you pre-register your criteria, like here's, here's my set of search terms. Here's what I'm going to count. Like you can say you're going to count only randomized trials with a placebo, or you can have broader criteria. You can say only ones that are sufficiently powered or only trials that meet one, a particular rating for like risk of bias. I mean, there are various tools <clears throat> that, uh, that, you know, go through criteria that, you know, that can make RCTs more or less biased. So, I mean, hopefully they, they did all that work, hopefully, like we, I mean, I haven't seen it, but hopefully they did all that work and then actually went through and, you know, conducted that uh, kind of rubric, you know, went through the rubric and decided uh, in a fair way, like which trials to include in the analysis and which to exclude. But that that was in the details in any of these. Yeah. Like yeah. Not everything hopefully that analysis is, is of equal quality either. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, with, um, you know, Cochrane, Cochran, um, yeah. Re review of, a review of um, grading for studies to be included and excluded in RCTs. Mm -hmm. When uh, when people have sent uh, you know different studies to experts and said grade these, um, they find that it's almost entirely random. Mm. 
Well, but yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, look, I bet there's some, a lot of cases in the middle like that. I mean, there's, I think there's some, some trials that pretty clearly anyone would say are bad and are not, not high quality. And, and some trials were hopefully most people would say, yeah, that seems like a pretty reasonably rigorous and well done trial, but there's probably a lot of messiness in the middle somewhere. Yeah. It didn't seem weird that nobody excludes the WHO trials. I mean, well, well, they don't I even test for antiviral effect. Right. I, I mean, I guess, hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the usual tools for, for risk of bias don't get into the substance of like, you know, was this administered at the right time or, you know, that. Oh, I would think so. I, I would be shocked if that weren't like one of the highest things on the list. Right. Are they administering the medicine at a time at which it would be effective? <laughs> right. That just seems like that. That just seems like so important, so obvious that it would shock me if that's not one of, you know, and, and you can you can insert risk of any form of bias that you want when you do these kinds of gradings. Right. Um, it, it is a process that is controlled by the person making the selections. Um, but I would think a competent person would absolutely say, okay, you know, this trial has a median of seven days after the onset of symptoms. That's not a test of an antiviral medicine when replication goes on for five to eight days. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I'm actually pulling up the Cochrane risk of bias tool. Um, yeah, I mean, let me send you. They have it on a, like a Google Drive, actually. I, I got here straight from the Cochrane page. Um, but yeah, here's here's their, where their current, like, what they call crib sheet, I guess, for, um, yeah, this is the short version. It's still 24 pages long. But yeah, the, they first start out asking, you know, was the allocation sequence random? Was the allocation sequence concealed? Did baseline differences between the groups suggest a problem with randomization? Um, were participants aware of their assigned intervention? Were you know basically was there blinding? Um, were there deviations? You know, and, and this this strikes me as nonsensical. Like turning this into a checklist. Um, this is where I, I find that, um, especially recently in biomedical research, it becomes nonsensical. Uh, a good researcher should be able to you know recognize things like you know this doesn't test an antiviral and, and have you know their own you know. If, if they can't if they can't apply these things without a checklist, they probably shouldn't be the researcher conducting a meta-analysis in that area is, is my you know strong opinion. Um, it just seems nonsensical to turn everything into um, into a checklist and into an algorithm because there are times when those algorithms just don't make sense. And if if you know when you apply an antiviral isn't isn't you know part of a checklist, then you know I don't know. And, and, and again, you know, we have 11 RCTs out of India, all with the same general protocol, except that with six of them, there was, uh, you know, a, a dose dependent effect uh, added, um, but otherwise with the same protocol being run by the same organization. And, you know, we have a meta-analysis that includes some and excludes others. And mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem like that would be done according to a checklist, right? So, you know, there's, there's sort of a wrong level of lack of subjectivity and a and a level of use of subjectivity that can go wrong. Um, well, and, and I would argue that we are in an environment where we should be worried about, um, I, I would say that uh, that there has been extreme bias over 
you know, the, the early treatment medical trials are early. And, and it, it, you know, it's funny that we even call them early treatment because the whole point of calling them early treatment was that uh, people were creating trials to test them later than they would be used. Now, say more about uh, the dose-dependent effect. I'm curious about that because you're, you were criticizing the, the, I think, the recovery trial, right, the World Health Organization, uh, for having too high of a dose. But so are you suggesting there's some, like, inverted U-curve where, like, if the dose is too low, it doesn't work. If the dose is just right, it does work. If the dose is too high, it doesn't work. Or, 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 what, ex or what exactly are you saying? Okay. Um, there, there is a Goldilocks zone. Um, you know, if you are trying to reach a certain, um, you know, blood serum level, you know, like I said, the, the pharmacokinetic studies said 3.6, 3.7. Um, that's within a certain window. With prophylaxis, you're asking people to take something once a week. And so, you know, the, the blood serum levels are going to go sort of up and, and trickle down, up, trickle down, up, trickle down. Um, you know, having something like a two to three ratio isn't getting like way outside of this Goldilocks zone, right? It's, it's, uh, it's actually getting, um, you know, the higher dose is getting you closer to that, to a similar blood serum level that would happen with 3.7 grams if it were all given within the first like five days or something like that. So I think that it, that's a different dose effect than what you're giving people in the first, you know, like five days. Um, and then also um, there was a temporal effect that is also a dose dependent effect in uh, the, the Indian studies where um, you saw a higher, uh, higher rate of efficacy after people had received the doses for six weeks, you could see it in the curve. Hmm. And, and when you see that kind of temporal uh, and dose dependent effects, you know, it, it seems mechanistically related, right? Hmm. Um, and well, uh, I mean, it just if I could check, are, were they like randomly assigning people to take the medicine for longer periods or shorter periods? Or was this just like kind of observing who took it longer? Uh, it, it, it's, it is a little bit different um, because at the very beginning, uh, they were running, you know, studies more quickly. So um, not all of these were fully randomized, but some of them, you know, most uh, of them, were, I think. This, this is why I asked, because like um, there, there's the, the source of people who take medicine regularly, you know, for six, let's say for six weeks and longer, they might also be the source of people who are just more worried about COVID and who are more careful about you know, who they associate with and whether they isolate if they're if they feel symptoms. You know, they would be more careful generally about going to large gatherings and so forth. Um, so, so it's in, so there's a I forget. Oh yeah, Gary. Okay, and I I agree with the point that you're going into. I'll just go ahead and concede agreement. That, okay. that there may be a difference in the type of people who do so. But here's what I would counter is that meta-analyses don't run on a feedback loop, but they should, right? Like if I'm running a meta-analysis and I say, look, these are the highest quality pieces of evidence and then I run through them. And then I look at the evidence that I left out because I wasn't sure if something like what you're talking about might have an effect. But I see that those studies have similar results. And I see things like dose dependency and temporal and they fit in then what I would say is by not including them, you underestimate the statistical power of the evidence at play, right? Outside of biomedicine, nobody goes, I have data, I'm going to throw it away in a binary way, right? All data is, is useful, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you have people with, uh, you know, in, in finance, uh, we don't take data and we go either we're going to use all of it or we're going to use none of it. Um, you know, once we've learned more about something, then we can be, you know, then we can learn to use the other data better. 
And so I would say that um, it, it's nonsensical that we run meta-analyses where we don't go back and say, okay, since the since all these other studies, even if we thought there might be a confounder, but look, they're consistent. So there probably wasn't an unknown confounder, and there usually isn't. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm just, I was just making the point, though, that like there's, there's something that, um, I forget what it's exactly what it's called, maybe the adherence effect. So Gary Taubes, who writes a lot on diet nutrition, um, a firm like kind of believer in, in the low carb diet. Uh, but there's there's an article or a book where he makes the point that um, there's some heart heart disease study um, where you know they they there's a there's a medicine I forget which medicine it was maybe statins I forget um, where they you know they're comparing that medicine versus placebo right but then if you do an analysis where you only look at the people who really adhered and took whatever they were given medicine versus placebo mm -hmm. like really consistently for the, throughout the trial it turned out the the people who took the placebo consistently had better health than the people in the overall like treatment group who got the heart drug. Yes. Now, it seems the heart drug works in that case, but being the sort of person who rigorously does what they're supposed to every week, every day or whatever, even in the placebo group, they're, they're better off. They're more, they're healthier. They're, you know, they're, they do better for whatever reason. Like they're the type of person who just is really conscientious about their health and that probably in other ways that you can't observe or control for. So, so I do think that probably that can be a confounder, like in lots of, in lots of ways, that's probably was a, in the experiment I mentioned earlier about uh, um, hormone replacement therapy, that was probably an unseen confounder. The, the, so the sorts of people, and I do think it's problematic that, you know, in a lot of different types of, of areas of medicine, you know, the sorts of people who show up to the doctor consistently and do what they're told and take this or that medicine, whatever it is, could even be a placebo in that case. Um, those people tend to be conscientious about lots of other things, maybe about what right. they do, how much they exercise, maybe about uh, whatever. And that's that can end up showing better health, you know. And so you really have to that's that's where I think the beauty of, of a well-done, well-designed randomized trial is that now that you've randomized, you have equal levels, you know, an expectation of those super conscientious people in both groups. So now it, it kind of balances out. You don't right. have all the super conscientious, super health conscious people that are that are in the group that is taking the medicine. So that's that's to me the beauty of a, of a well done. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we basically agree there. Um, what I would say is that uh, if I were running uh, any kind of a, a control trial, that I would have two separate uh, sets of calculations. I would have calculations for the people who, um, you know, just followed the whole protocol all the way through, you mm -hmm. know, called conscientious groups, conscientiousness uh, subsets of the two arms, mm -hmm. compare those. And then I would also take a look within the arms and look for some sort of dependency on the conscientiousness, which might be a dose dependence also then within the treatment group and see what I can find there. And the interesting thing is in the Indian studies, they're doing this. And in the American studies or the, you know, the Western studies, generally they weren't. Um, mm. And so, the, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I find myself, uh, you know, frustrated that we didn't already reach this point where it was understood that the prophylaxis evidence was so crushingly, positive because, um, you know, there, there were several dozen prophylaxis studies. And I believe that there were uh, 14. Uh, it, it, this was at the end of last year. I, I kind of uh, summarized all of the, the evidence laid it out. There may be most of the evidence had come in by the end of last year, but there may be a few that I've missed. But out of the 14 you know, negative studies, 12 were on 
you know, immunocompromised patients. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, let's see, I can't remember exactly what my problems were with the other two, but mm -hmm. it, it was the Indian studies that in particular, um, uh, you know, they're, they're not typeset as well, but they did do things like look at, oh, you know, you've got um, certain adherence levels. So let's study what we can see from the data about adherence levels. And, you know, we, we don't get much analysis in, uh, <coughs> uh, that I've seen from like, uh, the Western, uh, meta-analysis authors. Um, and yet still, even after excluding all that, that evidence, they eventually came to the conclusion that there was a statistically significant effect. I think it's higher than a 28% reduction. I think that it's that, that, uh, you know, with good adherence uh, for six weeks or more with a high enough dose. You know, and that's what, that's that's one of the things that I that bothers me about meta analyses too. Um, it's one thing to put all these in the same pool and say you have a twenty eight percent reduction in COVID. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to say, wait, that you know, okay, we have a statistically significant effect. We'd say it most likely works, but what you're really looking for in medical studies is what had the best effect once you come mm -hmm. to the conclusion that there was an effect. If you have these different protocols. And the ones that go six weeks or more with a certain dose are the ones that work better. You shouldn't say um, we we see a twenty eight percent effect. You should say we see whatever it is fifty four percent effect. And and I think that that's that's getting much closer to the actual answer. Is uh, is where you have you know full length and full doses. Um, the Western studies confound that a bit because not all of those studies used true placebos. And this mm -hmm. is one, this was one of the problems with uh, hydroxychloroquine research. Um, like uh, at, uh, Minnesota, University of Minnesota ran uh, three or four trials. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And uh, I believe two of those trials, they, uh, they used folic acid instead of something like, you know, talc or, you know, whatever we know is inert. Mm. Interesting. And we have seen different rates of illness amongst pregnant women, meaning that uh, folate, which is a common supplement during pregnancy, could be a confounder. And in fact, there was already a paper suggesting that as a mechanism at the time those trials began in, in Minnesota. So like that, that looks very, I, I personally thought that looked suspicious because I, I saw a bunch of other problems in those trials. But then uh, later on when they ran, um, I, I believe a pre-exposure prophylaxis trial, um, Rajasingham, I believe was the author of that one. Uh, they used uh, ascorbic acid, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, you know, there, there's its own body of research uh, suggest, you know, that's mostly positive. Right. Right. Suggesting effects. So, um, mm. you know, that would dampen any kind of an effect size that's computed into those results. So I think that the true answer is, is probably more like in the 50, 60, 70% range, if you optimize protocol. And, and this is, this was part of my point about P values. If we thought of P values as something that we get from repetition and optimization, if that were the way that we thought about this, like we do in almost every other field, we're getting the right answer, where our job depends on getting, you know, closest to the right answer, getting the optimum protocol, getting the optimum product, then we would be thinking that way and meta-analysis would be published that way. But I personally think that it's quite intentional that they're not, because the outside statistics community, you may not hear this within the medical community that you discuss this with, the outside statistics community for decades has said, by the way, this is all nonsense. You know, it's not it's not axiomatical math based on on anything that you can build up from. It's like the creation of rules of thumbs that become bedrocks. And once anything becomes a rule, you, you can game that rule and that the system has moved more and more toward gaming that rule.
By the way, I'm going to go ahead and stop and ask just because, you know, I respect your time. I appreciate you joining me today. I don't know how much time you have. We've gone for, uh, for you know, a little over an hour. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, you can let me know how much time you can give to the conversation and, and we'll wrap up at any point you need to. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I feel like there's maybe a few other things that, I mean, in your, in your uh, kind of initial uh, you know, discussion of RCTs, I feel like there's some points, but then I'm kind of blanking on them. Now. <laughs> um, but that, that would be interesting to discuss. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have a, a little while longer and then, uh, yeah, we can wrap up whenever you. Yeah, and if there's anything that you forget or any like links that you want like uh, an audience to see that you feel like better best educates the audience, uh, you know, I'll take the video and I'll put it into an article on my Substack, and you can okay. feel free to come and comment and uh, and list things down there. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I would appreciate if you did that. Sure. And uh, we might continue the conversation there, or if you ever want to come back and have another conversation, you know, you you'd be welcome to. Sure, I put I put in a link to uh, Vinay Prasad's book that I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, so yeah. By the way, the audience doesn't see this is in the, our private chat where these links are. Gotcha. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah, if you want to copy that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I still kind of lean towards Vinay Prasad's point that like true parachutes. Are, are pretty rare. And it, even if, I mean, I think earlier you are mentioning like someone who, uh, some doctor who, you know, said they had 4,000 patients and, and and no deaths. But I mean, I just wonder like, what what is the underlying rate of death that you would expect in, in 4,000 patients anyway? So, I mean, uh, based on- What, 3% in the county, it would be 120. Though I, I estimated, I did a mapping. Uh, I did a mapping on the age groups and I, I came up to, unexpected mortality rate of 2.27% hmm. for, I, I think that was the number I came up with for the Tyson Freed group uh, relative to the county. And it's probably still a little bit lower than that because, you know, again, um, you know, we're not in a nursing home and I think nursing home has a psychological effect on people. And it turns out that, that um, you know, mental incapacity, mental illness are high uh, risk confounders with COVID, you know, if, if you if you wanted to ask me to, to put a dart in a number after having looked at the data and thought it through and tried to be fair in terms of reducing a target, I think that it's probably, you know, somewhere in the one to 2%, probably a little bit closer to one than 2%. That's my fairest guesstimate mm. um, with all things taken into account, meaning that you would have had approximately 60 deaths, give or take, that would be a one and a half percent. You know, it, it's a number that, like I said, even if you reduce that, um, yeah, the expected, you know, it, at 3%, you would expect 120 deaths. Uh, even if you reduce the county deaths, which were at the time 636, um, probably now closer to 2000, even if you reduce that number by almost 97%, mm. their, their case series matched up to it um, would have been a, um, it, you could reduce it by 97%, they still would have had a statistically significant result with zero deaths. And they've mm -hmm. gone through, you know, numerous waves now. You know, I don't know, we're, we're in the fourth wave of, of COVID now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, things keep working. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and this is where I point to the literature, which says once you get past a certain power level, that historically OCTs are just as good as RCTs. They converge, you know, pretty, pretty rapidly once you get into the four-digit numbers. 
the power levels converge. Um, and it depends on, on what your, you know, what effect size you're powering the study for. But, you know, it, it, it's not like they're alone. There are like 20 something doctors worldwide who've, who have reported, you know, case series that are not all that dissimilar. Um, Didier Riol, who I, whom I believe is the most published um, uh, microbiologist of all time. Um, he had uh, over 8,000 patients and I can't remember the total number of deaths, but it was something like eight. But almost all of those came at the beginning of the pandemic when they were still figuring things out. Um, and, uh, you know, we're in very elderly patients. I think all of them were 75 or older, yeah. um, which is to say, you know, um, certainly there's lower risk. I think, you know, risk for people who are younger is more, you know, it, it's not like 1.5%. It's like 0.1% maybe, but still right. at a certain point, zero deaths is zero deaths. Well, that, that's that's also what I wonder about a lot of a lot of the people that kind of make claims about having seen thousands and thousands of patients. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm cynical about everybody, but I'm cynical about that claim because like, I'm just wondering like, okay, so you're saying you saw 10 or 15 brand new COVID patients every single day. I'm like, that's a lot of COVID patients. Like, well, it's five outpatient clinics. Okay. Like as a whole clinic. Okay. Yeah. So, and Saudi Arabia had 200 something outpatient clinics and got a similar result. Hmm. But then also I'm wondering like who, who is, who is actually coming to these clinics? Because I mean, I'm looking at like just a recent article from the Lancet. I can post that, I think. Um, so you have that, um, that are like estimates of the like infection fatality ratio by age. Um, and so, um, sorry, there's someone, I have someone, some, my wife had someone come clean the house today. They always choose to run the vacuum like right outside my office whenever I'm on a call. But I, I don't hear it. Um, so it, okay, it, you don't hear it. All right, good. I'm, I hear it on this end. I'm like, it always happens. Every time I have something important, somebody's vacuuming. Like, that's the time to do it. Um, anyway, so like the, the just looking at the like infection fatality ratio by age, like once you get into elderly people, um, like between 70, well, 75 on up, it's the infection fatality ratio is between one and 10%. Um, you know, again, like when you're they're over 90 years old is like really high. Um, but then the infection fatality ratio for like people between 25 and 50 is like between, let's see, a 10th of 1% and a hundredth of 1%. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as you're saying, very, very small, but that's why I wonder like, the, the sorts of people who go to certain clinics, like if, if they're, you know, 35, 40 years old and their, their risk of, of, of dying anyways is already something like one in 10,000, like you, we would need a really, it would not be unusual at all for someone to have 10,000 such patients and not have a death. That would be one yeah. death. Normal. But so yeah, just to be clear, um, yeah, this is, this is more like case fatality rate, not infection fatality rate. Okay. These are these are uh, you know people who have come and tested positive and meet the the definition of a case. Okay. It is similar to the case definition of the county. So um, a little higher. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it's yeah higher than uh, than negligible, um, but not much higher than negligible uh, if you're talking about people under forty. But yeah, I mean they had patients in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They had people with oxygen levels as low as 70. You know, mm -hmm. um, they had a guy who. Uh, you know, would have been considered a, a severe case who was very elderly and had you know, 70 level oxygen. And, and uh, four days later, he was out shopping. Um, but, you know, people with uh, diabetes, you know, it's, it's a um, border farming community, right? Um, this is not a community where, where you have uh, generally low risk population. 
Um, mm-hmm. not a high wealth community. Um, you know, people who work, so not, you know, uh, an impoverished community, but, um, you know, uh, people with comorbidities. So, um, I, I, I guess I would counter that by saying, um, you know, most of the, the randomized control trials wind up, wind up being controlled by pharma um, because of the need for money. And at that level, um, you know, we, we can see, I, I think, shenanigans, uh, you know, lots of uh, cases of fraud. I mean, you know, this is an industry that is literally on trial for funding terrorism in the Middle East right now. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say as far as trust level goes and, you know, I would say, you know, the. Uh, people should see videos of, of Dr. Tyson and George Freed. I mean, these guys are gentlemen. Um, you know, they don't seem like your typical scam artist. George Freed's in his 70s. He's, you know, Harvard trained physician, was a Davis Cup, um, you know, doctor. Um, he has no reason to, to you know, go out on a limb with anything that's, that's you know, um, that's not good. But on the other end, when you see, you know, dozens of these case series from around the world, and they almost all look exactly the same. You know, at some point, it feels like um, you, you've got to let that trust level, you know, uh, it, there's repetition, you know, you, you've got to let that trust level work itself out. And there's repetition, even though a lot of it's been suppressed. Uh, you'll find a Time magazine article from March of 2020 about a doctor who was was tired of the hospitals overflowing and people dying there. And he said, this is something we should be treating at home. We should be trying antivirals. And there was there was a literature, actually, between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. There mm-hmm. were about seven or eight studies that said, hey, look, we have um, you know, in vitro effects of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. That should be the first thing off the shelf that we try. And so he did, you know, um, he, he you know, knew well enough that people were already talking about and expecting for that to be the most likely agent to work. So he went outside the hospital, started treating hundreds of people. Five percent of them were hospitalized. None of them were dying. And uh, he was interviewed by Time magazine. But of course, after the, the Trump press conference, the press just stop reporting on any of that mm-hmm. so we we don't know how far he went and most physicians are you know aren't equipped to you know uh record and run their own case series or maybe they're just too busy because other people aren't doing the job as well um that's one of the things that i've run into talking with doctors around the world um and in particular like um th- there's one who, who I, I think his case series are not listed but he was uh part of the the icmr our team uh, in India that was designing the protocols for doctors in particular. He had 8,000 patients, COVID you know, cases amongst doctors, five, uh, five mortalities. But uh, in India, a lot of the doctors use Facebook to communicate with each other. And Facebook was censoring the doctors who were using hydroxychloroquine, meaning separating them from their patients in the middle of treatments. Hmm. So he literally had to stop using hydroxychloroquine just to be able to use his communication tool with patients. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, there are all kinds of case series that, that might be in India if there were people who would go collect them, but the infrastructure isn't quite as good outside of certain centers. India is a place where you've got some really excellent universities that have, um, you know, built up over the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, especially on a technical uh, technical side. You've got uh, plenty of good engineers and statisticians, mm-hmm. computer scientists, and they can do this stuff, but, um, you know, lots of doctors they're using it that you never see their data but when you talk to those people i've talked to you know uh, maybe about a dozen people in india they were all seeing the same thing and there there's uh you know case studies out of brazil that have or you know uh, case series in brazil that have never been published um i think his name was dr prado in uh in rio de janeiro 
And uh, you know, he had thousands of patients and, and very little mortality. He took ivermectin into uh, a ghetto community, uh, just gave it to the 3,000 residents, gave it freely to everybody, and uh, they didn't report any cases. Um, that was at a time when you know, Rio de Janeiro was just overflowing with cases. That was middle of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I would say that, um, that I would counter with you don't, get, you don't hear the evidence as much from the case series there's more out there but the consistency the repetition should be the thing that we look to first Mm. it would be an amazing global conspiracy Um, right and i mean i guess because i'm just inherently skeptical of anything pretty much but i guess to me like going back to the parachute question or the like you know the issue of, of gleevec and treating a type of leukemia like you know, when, when, when a drug cures leukemia or puts 80% of people in remission, like it's not like a secret. It's not something that can be kept a secret. And it's, sure, not, absolutely. it's not something anybody even doubts. You know, everyone sees it with their, they're like, okay, that, that stuff really works. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of come back to the kind of inherent skepticism. Okay. Some doctors say this is such an obvious effect. I can see it with my bare eyes. And I'm like, well, then why doesn't everybody already believe it? Because that's that's what happened. That's what happened with penicillin. That's what happened with Gleevec. When a drug really, really cures stuff in the, at that level, like there aren't any doubters. You know what I mean? Like this. So I'm almost right. Like, well, I, I would say that amongst the people who were using it earlier, you know, what we've heard from in the media are, you know, the people who are doing things in hospitals. People don't go right. to the hospital until they're past the viral replication stage, typically. So we're hearing from the people who would not have any view of whether or not it worked. Right. Yeah, the people who would have that view are the people who have come forward, risked careers, have been censored, been attacked by, um, you know, medical boards even for, for speaking out, but, um, you know, have suffered, uh, have risked careers. And, uh, you know, when, when people are taking that step, I would say, you know, that that's a lot of veracity. Right, right. I mean, maybe there's something, yeah, maybe there's something. And, and like, I, I would be interested to hear of the doctors, uh, you know, around the world who, uh, who did try this as day one treatment, you know, who did try uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Um, I'm more sure of the hydroxychloroquine research, but, you know, part of that is I've read probably 250 studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I hear good things also about ivermectin, but I, you know, I, I'm more secure with my understanding of the evidence for hydroxychloroquine. Um, I just don't hear people say I was using it as early treatment, stop using it. The people who say I stopped using it are all the hospitals. You know, they had bought up stocks in, in early uh, March. The stocks of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine bought by the hospital skyrocketed by several hundred percent because mm-hmm. they were also hearing. We didn't hear this from the media. It was like a media blackout on discussion of it, which is weird, right? It's weird that that the media wasn't talking about what had been talked about for years as the first drug to pull off the shelf in a SARS-CoV pandemic. But mm-hmm. the hospitals were buying it up and they were using it. I, I've even talked to I talked to a doctor um, at uh, um, uh, New Haven Medical, uh, Yale uh, Hospital. Um, mm-hmm. and, and early on during the pandemic, they were using it. And what he told me is uh, looks good and showed me it shared the charts with me. But mm-hmm. later he, he unshared the charts with me. And uh, and he said that they didn't think from Desivere work either. But, uh, you know, they shifted policy. And I, I worry about pressures. I worry about, um, you know, pressures from the pharmaceutical industry. But I mean, I, I saw data 
that said that that it was working well with hospital patients there. But one way or another, I believe that with patients who waited too long to go to the hospital, that it probably has very little effect. It, it may have some effect on certain patients because mm -hmm. hydroxychloroquine can suppress some cytokines, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it's used with autoimmune disorders. So there may be a subset of patients that it still works for. And, and I saw some of that evidence in the Chinese research. There's a paper, uh, Tang et al. They had him pull a paragraph out of his paper before he published it, though, that said amongst the people um, that had been given hydroxychloroquine, you could see, you know, um, that it didn't work for everybody, but, but for a portion of the patients, they got better quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they had, uh, they had the researcher pull that paragraph out before the paper was published. Um, so I, I, I bet that there's a small effect for a subset of people in hospitals, but that's not where you would judge it. You know, if you want the optimal protocol, and, and the fact that nobody's talking about the optimal protocol, nobody's even couching the problem that way. It's weird, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's almost like we were put in a trance to not think about the problem correctly. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I remembered one point that, that you said early, early, early on. So um, that RCTs are expensive. And I agree with you to some extent, but I, I think that's not it doesn't have to be the case. And I think that people you know, governments, funding agencies, et cetera, ought to put more effort into making RCTs easier and cheaper and, and quicker to do. So, and there are examples of this. So there was a, a well-known um, uh, randomized trial in Europe uh, called the TASTE trial. And it stood for, it, trials, trials are always named something like this, but it stood for something. I can't remember what it was. But um, this is a, a trial that took place in routine medical practice and uh, they have a like centralized electronic health record system in, in Scandinavia where this occurred. And the, the trial cost, I think, something like 1% of the normal clinical trial that uh, pharma companies do. Um, just because you're, you're using like routine medical records to check on people you know, yep. rather than collecting data from scratch. Um, and you were just kind of using medicines that were already in, in like common practice, kind of testing them against each other. Uh, so you weren't like, having to generate, having to pay for all of that from scratch. It was, you know, already part of medical practice. So um, I think there, there are ways, you know, people ought to be looking at ways to do clinical trials or, or RCTs that are, are cheaper and more routine. Um, and because why not? I mean, there, there, yeah. are, there are ways, I mean, and, you know, you I, I completely agree with you there, but with a caveat, which is that I don't want there to be anybody who centrally controls those databases. I think that we're going to see uh, big data work the way that it should when we have distributed information. I think this is one of the problems that uh, cryptocurrency can solve. Um, when you have uh, distributed control of information, then we will be able to do exactly that. Um, and, you know, like a, a trial may literally be writing a query at that point in some cases, right? Um, if you want to know um, how vitamin C um, may prevent the onset of sepsis uh, within a certain subgroup population, um, you may just be able to type that in as a query and then boom, have the answer already. Um, well, I, I wouldn't call that a trial, but in myself, but, yeah, but I would say that, that you could, you know, with access to doctors who agree to do this, like you could like do a, a quick randomized trial where you like literally get the doctors to agree to randomize, okay, vitamin C versus not. Yeah. You could do it prospectively also. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I bet that you'll get mostly, you know, the same results in most cases, but, uh, um, but you may get less of like a placebo effect if you do, you know, retrospectively do something that people didn't know that they were, 
you know, being matched or, or, or going to do. Um, and the nice thing is that then you get to see something like uh, natural rates of adherence to the medic medication. Um, but mm -hmm. I was, I was going to add uh, one more piece that I, I, I do believe that we will see that in the big data. I think there's going to be a fight over control of the data and we need to be careful about how that fight takes place. Um, and, uh, oh, at some other point and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. That's uh, okay. <laughs> we, we've covered a lot. So, um, we have, yeah. Well, you, you want to wrap things up here? Yeah. It so sounds good. I mean, I've been, it's been a good discussion and, uh, enjoyed it and, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for being uh, willing and, uh, and bringing uh, you know, a different perspective. Um, I can see that you, uh, you're not, uh, particularly, uh, hardened partisan on these issues. So um, you're thinking about it, you have an open mind, you're learning more. Um, and, you know, we should all be trying to, to do that and talking with each other, um, which I think has happened less than it should have during the pandemic. Yeah. So, and that's, I, that to me is one of the most unfortunate things is that I feel like it, and it occurs on all sides, but that there have been become partisan, that partisan positions on medical treatments. That That's just really weird to me. So, I mean, it, should, it seems like it's your position on a medical... I mean, my, your position on a cancer treatment shouldn't depend on what political beliefs you have. And there's, there should be no correlation at all. Like it should be ideally, like if, if a drug cures can a type of cancer, everyone should be able to agree on what the standards of evidence are and like, whether that is a good drug to use. Like, it seems to me, yeah, it's unfortunate that it ends up being some sort of partisan divide yeah, in any fashion. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Uh, I appreciate it. I hope our audience gets something uh, out of the conversation. I hope it's educational for a lot of people. Um, I, I don't know um, how well I have the link saved, but like I said, you're invited to come uh, comment on the Substack and share any of the research that you want to okay. share. Sounds All good. Right. All right. Thanks. Yeah.